This is episode 63 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and joining me to recap the Edmonton Oilers' last two games before the NHL All-Star break is Troy Martinson. Troy, how's it going today? Great, Eric. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, man. It's good to talk to you. Uh, You know, we're about halfway through the bye week. Are you finding that nine days without Oilers hockey is uh, too long? (laughs) Yes, it is. I mean... You get wound up for the season uh, in the summertime. September comes, and you know you're getting closer. And then things start flying by. You get to the Christmas break. You know that's coming. But this this was an odd one. Um, usually, I think it's sometime in the beginning of January where we see the orders get their bye week. But having this happen right during the All-Star week just extends it. So I think the players like it. You know, the fans probably don't like it, but here we are. Yeah, I was. You, I'm gonna agree with the point you made there. It feels like the bye week came at a bad time, just because the Oilers are riding an eight-game unbeaten streak in regulation, and they've been playing their best hockey all season in January. So it would be great if they could have just kept it rolling. But hopefully, they'll be able to pick up right where they left off when they return to action next week. And you know, considering how many minutes the top guys play, as well as how many injuries the Oilers have had this season. I think this is a good time for them to rest and heal. And, you know, hopefully that'll be important for them down the stretch drive. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully that they can start the next uh, the next bunch of games to finish off the season. I'd like to see stronger starts from them um, than what we've seen so far, particularly at home. So, yeah, it'll be an interesting uh, stretch drive here the last, what, 32 games? Yeah, and it's 32 games in 65 days. So basically they're going to be playing every other day for the next you know, two plus months. So it's going to be a busy, you know, run to the finish here. For sure. But uh, before we talk about the Oilers recent play, I'd like to just hear a little bit about your own history as a fan of this team, since you're a first time guest on the show. So let's just start at the beginning. When did you start following hockey and how did you become a fan of the Oilers? Well, I kind of started following hockey. It was mostly by accident. Um, My mom and I had uh, moved in with a family. Um, I had stepbrothers who, you know, I didn't really like at first. I was a four-year-old snot-nosed kid. So anything uh, negative that happened towards them, I was kind of cheering for. So my oldest stepbrother, um, he's a diehard Montreal Canadiens fan. So every Saturday we'd be sitting in front of the Channel 11 on the farm ca- cable vision, um, watching the Habs play in French. Um, just because that was the only way he could watch and because he was running the TV on Saturday nights, it's all that I could watch. So I became a fan of anyone who played Calgary or anyone who played the Canadians. My ABC started with anybody but Canadians. And what so, year would this have been around? This would have been uh, 1979. Okay, so, so right when the Oilers were coming into the league. That's right. So, and I didn't really have a team at that point. Um CBC was really pumping uh, the Leafs as they still do now. So I kind of fell into watching Toronto as I picked up some interest watching the games that Montreal played. And the funny thing of the whole scenario is that that summer um, I'd met my oldest brother's mom who had come out and I'll never forget it. She, she seemed like she was uh, some kind of celebrity. She pulled up, I remember in this big white sedan and jumped out of her vehicle with this, what was a white, orange, and blue jersey that I didn't recognize whatsoever. 
Um, she had the number nine on the back, which was obviously Glenn Anderson. And right away, um, my brother, being the Habs fan, he started chirping her. Um, she started chirping back, and I was just kind of standing around outside watching. And she looked at me, and she said, who's your team? I told her, I said, anybody, anybody but the Canadians, anybody who's playing Montreal. So she laughed, and she said, well, I've got a team for you to cheer for. So I'm like, oh, okay. So she, I'll never forget it. She went to the back of her trunk, pulled out this youth Oilers jersey. It was white, just like hers. It didn't have a number on the back. And my, I just remember my eyes just lit right up, and I fell in love. She's like, I remember her telling me that, you know, you're really going to want to pay attention to this team. They've got they've got a player that's going to be one of the best players who ever played. And I remember my brother laughing and scoffing about it. She's like, and he said, uh, who's that? The, the Oilers trade for Guy Lafleur? At the time, obviously, Montreal was kind of a powerhouse at that point right. in the late 70s. And she gave me an alarm clock radio and a schedule for the Oilers' entire upcoming season. and you know what? I would tune into the games on the radio. Um, ITV started kicking in with some uh, games in the early 80s. And yeah, I mean, I, I fell in love as a, as a kid watching the Oilers from the ages of, you know, five, five years old until now. But I mean, during the early 80s, I never thought that they would lose. It seemed like, you know, they were so good. I remember crying when they lost to the Islanders in the first their first cup run. I remember watching Steve Smith's um, memorable goal against on Fuhrer that yeah. yeah robbed them of a potential cup in '86 as well. And yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been a ride. And actually, I was just talking to my brother this morning, and, and for the first time, he wasn't talkative about Montreal. I had to I had to rib him a bit, you know, <laughs> ask him what his thoughts are on Bedard because you know he's a potential spot. To yeah. go to Montreal this season, so yeah, that's kind of my background for the Oilers, and you know, it's it was it's been a it's been a ride. It had some great years, followed by some very lean years, and now we're up on the rise again with the the best player in the world again, which Oilers fans really need to uh, not take for granted because uh, a player like McDavid comes down comes around once once in a generation. So enjoy it, Oilers fans. Oh, absolutely, and you know looking back at that 80s era Oilers, I wish I could have been around for it. I was mm-hmm. born in 1989, so I missed all, like basically all the dynasty. I was alive for the 1990 Cup, but yeah. I didn't get to see any of the Gretzky years. And being such a huge Gretzky fan myself, I I think that's one thing. I, I've joked that I wish I was born 15 years earlier so that I could have experienced that incredible era of hockey and oil country. But um, having Connor McDavid and and also Leon Draisaitl now is the closest thing that our fan base has seen since Wayne Gretzky and Mario or and sorry and Mark Messier were the the two stars in town uh, in the 80s and early 90s. But just uh, an, an incredible era, and I'm always interested to talk to fans who were Oilers fans at that time because I, I've had a few guests who followed the team through the 80s, and it's always interesting to hear their stories of, of watching that team live because a lot of fans my age are younger. You know, we've, we've heard everything. We've seen all the, the video and, and heard countless people talk about what an incredible experience it was to watch the most exciting and offensively dominant team ever. But to actually have been around for it and witness it with your own eyes, that must have been just 
a great experience for you as a hockey fan? Oh, it, it was uh, so memorable that I can recount certain points from almost every season when regards to the playoffs. And the one that really stands out to me is uh, game one on Long Island in 1984 when the Oilers and Grant Fuhr shut out the defending Stanley Cup champions in game one, one nothing. Yeah, I think yeah. it was Kevin McClellan who scored. Kevin McClellan, yeah. Uh, your cornerstone, fourth-line grinder. I think that's what we see a lot of the the media panders for, is the Kevin McClellan-type players here that the Oilers generally either don't have or they seem to be missing from one team to the next. But, you know, that was just one of those moments where, you know, Everything just, you know, they, that was one of the best teams that they've ever had. So for them to come out, beat a team that had won 19 straight playoff series. Yep. was just, I mean, that in itself is a is a mark that's that still stands to this day and, and likely never to be beaten again. And you talk that, about. You know, if you think about the 86 year, though, if the Oilers would have won the cup that year, they had a potential to have five straight. And then they would have broken it. It would have been 20 straight playoff series. Unfortunately, it just uh, came out on the wrong end against the Flames in the second round that year. But um, all in all, five cups in seven years, you were treated to some incredible hockey as a <laughs> as a young Oilers fan. And I think you said that you had a, a radio when you first started following the team. So you must have listened to Rod Phillips uh, a lot uh, in those in those early 80s uh, days. Oh, Eric, I, I remember fondly um, listening to this, the Tuesday night games or Monday night games in L.A. that were played late as a, as a young boy. I'd have the radio tucked underneath my pillow so that <laughs> no one else could hear but me and then try to muffle my, my uh, screams of joy when every time the Oilers seemed to score, which back in those days was Would a have lot. been a lot, yeah. It was a lot, yeah. yeah. And... Um... Uh, and who were uh, a few of your favorite players growing up? Um, well, Gretzky was always a standout, but you know, I always, I always really enjoyed watching Paul Coffey. Like his and his end-end rushes were just remarkable. Grant Fuhr's uh, passing ability, which I think, you know, is overlooked with all of the accolades that he's had throughout his career. Um, Glenn Anderson, just his. <laughs> His reckless approach to the game, just driving to the net with the puck, which just, you know, those when when the when the nets were seen to be concrete, stapled to the ice. I yeah, mean, he wasn't. There wasn't a net that he wasn't scared of running through. He was like a missile headed at that goaltender. <laughs> he really was. Um, yeah, I mean, those were uh, just a remarkable um, amount of talent that the Oilers were able to find um, through the draft. I mean. You think about what's what's been lacking and with the Oilers as of late in the last 20 years, it's just their their drafting ability, like rounding out a, a roster with draft picks. And that was the one thing that they did so well, better than anybody. Um, Especially put, in the early years of the team in 79, 80, 81, to, to draft several Hall of Famers in multiple drafts to surround the greatest player of all time. That was such a great foundation that allowed them to be a powerhouse in the league for a decade. Absolutely. I mean, even when Paul Coffey had some contract disputes and ended up getting shipped out, they still seemed to pick up 
right where they left off by just adding pieces and other players would come up. And like, even Steve Smith was a draft pick, I believe, in 81. Yeah. It took him a while to come up. And it just, you know, like you said, there's just so many great players that they were able to draft and develop that turned into, you know, memorable players in this league. Right. And part of the reason that it took guys like Smith so long to break into the team was because it was such an established strong elite NHL team at that point that you're trying to crack a roster that's already won multiple Stanley Cups by that point. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it was like being Steve Smith. I mean, he must have learned a lot in his as a rookie mm-hmm. before he started um, full-time in the NHL watching, you know, guys like Paul Coffey and and um, Charlie Huddy run up and down the ice and, you know, just do amazing things out there seemingly every night. And like I said, like as a child growing up, I, you, t- you take it for granted. You just don't think that – I just didn't think it was ever going to end the way that things were going. And um, eventually it all, you know, money becomes an issue. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, what do you remember about your first Oilers game at Northlands Coliseum? I believe it was 1983, uh, Minnesota – I think Gretzky had a seven-point or eight-point night. I think he had two goals and six assists. Warriors ended up winning, I think, was – I was looking up this the other day. I think it was eight to three that we ended up winning or nine to three. Was Who was just, it against? The Minnesota North Stars. Minnesota North Stars, okay. Yeah, it was around – I think it was right around this time. I'd have to go back and look again. But I did save a pay stub, but – or the ticket stub. Um, lost it during one of my many moves. But, yeah, that would have been my first game. And it was just – you know, just sit there live and, and to see that there's just nothing that, you know, it's completely different than watching it on TV, obviously. So I believe I have it here. January 15th, 1983. Yeah. And it was a let's take a look here. 10-4 uh, win for the Oilers. <laughs> <laughs> Gretzky chipping in a goal and five assists. Not yes. too bad. Not too bad. So for your first NHL experience live, that uh, that was a pretty good game to go to, see the team score 10 goals. Yeah, I mean, it's it was, like I said, he, he never thought it was going to end. Like the way that they were scoring and the way that they were winning, it just seemed commonplace. So every time they would play as a, as a kid, I'd think, oh, they're going to win again. They're going to win again. When does the next season start? Because they're going to win again. Because it just seemed like the team was – so good and so much better than anybody else that the only thing that could really beat them was themselves as it turned out a six was the case and you know calgary gets beat up a lot in this province as being the second best team and the problem was they were probably the second best team in the league for many years they just had to end up the cup always seemed to go through edmonton right so and I don't have a problem with that. I'm sure you don't no. either. <laughs> no. I mean, what we've seen here last spring, I only wish that we could see that like every year. I'd rather the yeah. Oilers and Calgary not finish first in the division if that meant they could play, finish second and third and have the best of seven every spring. I think that's, as as you could see, the spring was uh, crazy. Yeah, that was definitely a series to remember, especially for younger Oilers fans who hadn't seen these two teams meet in the playoffs before. I mean, previously it was 1991, the last time that the Oilers and Flames met in the playoffs. So by this time, when you went to your first Oilers game in 83, they hadn't won the cup yet. They did get to the final that year, as you mentioned, and and lost to the Islanders. 
when it came to talking to other hockey fans that weren't fans of the team, like your brothers, or I don't know if you had any other friends that cheered for different teams, was there any doubt from those guys that, that this team could get over the hump? And were you the one sort of beating the drum that it's going to happen eventually here? Well, as a young kid, the, the only, um, um, well, there were other kids that were on the bus that uh, were Calgary Flames fans, like an entire family. Okay. Of, uh, imported Calgary Flames fans that had moved from the Calgary area um, to find some work around where I grew up. And so there was always the banter all season long. And, you know, when they all when it push come to shove, they knew who the best player in the world was. Kind of like we have the same scenario out playing out here now. Um, I don't think there was any doubt in anyone's mind that the Oilers were going to eventually win. It was just a matter of when and like how many was the real question. Is like how many, how many cups once they won the first one. I I didn't think it was going to end. And had it not been for you know Gretzky's contract being ten year contract with the Oilers ending and everyone getting shipped out because of Pocklington's money issues. I often wonder how many times, how many more cups they could have challenged for. Cause we forget in the 91 and 92 seasons, they, I believe that they were, if not in the conference final, um, they were around away. In like Minnesota, and yeah. Minnesota and uh, Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. So had they had Gretzky and, and company still around then, um, you know, I always look back and wonder what it would have been like to, to have a Gretzky versus Lemieux series in 92 or 93 or 91, as it turned yeah, out. That would have been incredible. And I don't know if you've ever seen the ESPN documentary King's Ransom. And it, it talks about the the Gretzky trade from Edmonton to L.A. in 1988. Mm-hmm. And the the documentary maker, Peter Berg, who is doing the, the show and, and interviewing Wayne Gretzky, he asks him, you know, if you would have stayed in Edmonton, how many cups do you think you would have won? And he said, well, you know, the team was good enough. I won four when I was there. I, I might have won four more. So mm-hmm. you, you're, you're kind of hearing that from the guy who would know best, who realized how good this team was and what he yeah. was giving up when he went to L.A. And that was the biggest sacrifice that even though he was going there uh, due to a financial situation and the fact that... You can say, yes, it did grow the game in the United States by having Gretzky go there and playing in a major U.S. market. Um, the, the Probably the biggest thing that he sacrificed in his career was the chance to win more championships. Yeah, and a lot of things, uh, something that gets missed in all of that is how difficult it is to win in this league. The greatest player in the world of all time leaves the greatest team, arguably, of all time. And he has won... He gets to see one Stanley Cup um, final chance again, whereas he leaves that same team and they go on the win without him. Just goes to, goes to show how deep and how good the nucleus of players was that he left behind. Right, and he was also, you know, he was leaving a team that had just won the Stanley Cup yeah. in 1987-88, and now he's joining a bottom feeder in the L.A. Kings that had to completely kind of start from the bottom and, and yes they did end up beating the Oilers in 1989 in the playoffs the next spring which I'm sure a lot of people didn't see coming considering how far down the standings they were the year before and the Oilers coming off a fourth championship in five years that that loss in 89 must have been one that 
stung because Gretzky was a part of the team, but it must have been just equally shocking that uh, the lowly Kings were able to take out the defending champs. I remember vividly thinking to myself, "Oh no, we got to play, we got to play Wayne in in the playoffs here." And I just remember thinking, "Well, if there's anybody that's going to beat us, it's going to be him." And of course, it happened. I mean, I don't think as 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 much as you know, the standees and everything do play a part in the overall perception of how a series is supposed to play out and how good the Oilers were. Um, it just goes to show you run into, I forget who was playing, I think, I'm trying to remember who was playing goal for LA at the time, but I just remember him get the Oilers getting outplayed in net for the majority of that series. And, I mean, it happens, we've seen it year in and year out. You run into a hot goalie and he can win you a series. Also, he can also win a coach, a Jack Adams, and get you fired the next year. So um, I, I, want, I want to think back to that series, and I want to think that the Oilers got outplayed more in net than it was anything else. But I think they uh, they turned it around next year. I think they ended up beating L.A. again. Yeah, and I believe it was Kelly Rudy who was traded yeah. to the uh, Kings from the Islanders halfway through that 88-89 season. So I'm pretty sure it was him. But, yeah, the Oilers did get the better of Gretzky and the Kings in – the 1990, 91, and 92 playoffs. So the only time that Wayne uh, came out on top against his former club was in 89. Yes. And when Gretzky left, I'm sure that was a, a devastating loss for you and many Oilers fans. But when that happened, did you continue to be an, a, a fan of Gretzky as well as the Oilers after that? Or was there uh, was it harder to cheer for the great one when he was wearing black and silver instead of orange and blue well i remember being a 13 year old kid in my sister's living room in the afternoon when you know the news broke and he had just gotten married and we thought that you know we had just won the cup and everything was going to be great and then all of a sudden gretzky's been traded it was like what i remember crying i was crying i was like i mean that, that's your that's your favorite team like that's everything that you watched your entire you know at that point it was just eight years of watching the Oilers. And you know he grew pretty Almost fond. All of, good at that point, like oh, you'd, you'd you'd experienced a lot more wins than losses by that point, and you know the highs the highs that you experienced were so high. I mean, it was just you know a cups here year after year. Yeah, it was, and and to see that it was a major breakup. It was like you know your parents divorcing or something equivalent. Mm-hmm. The way that you know it just happened so abruptly and ended so quick and. And then the season started and, you know, it was like, well, now what do we do now? And, and for me, it was, you know, Gretzky's in L.A. And it was just weird, you know, listening to him, listening to the play-by-play of him on the other side of the ice. And it was, uh, it took some time to get over it. But, I mean, I got over it quickly. I had to. And, um, yeah, they managed to squeeze one more cup out of and that nucleus before it all fell apart. even though they lost Gretzky, they still had a a dominant team that, you know, continued to be contending for cups for years after. And like you said, did win one more. Um, So that first game that you went to Northlands Coliseum, I'm sure that's one of your favorite memories um, of ever attending an Oilers game. But what would you say is your best memory of watching the Oilers either on TV or live at the arena? Oh, geez. I'm going to have to say it would have been game three versus San Jose. Um, in 2006, I, I managed to get to a, a game in every series that year. I was lucky enough to. Um, I remember the orders 
being down two nothing in the series and things weren't looking very good coming home and then they were down again in the game two to one. I think Torres scored early in the third and then we went to triple overtime before Orkoff um, won it after I think that's the same game that uh, Smith got his teeth knocked out by by that's Pronger. By Pronger, yeah. Yeah. So th- that was probably my most memorable moment because. Had they lost that game, I don't think that they were good enough to come back from 3 nothing down against San Jose. That was kind of the turning point for me in, in that entire playoff run. And if you remember, I think I, I think it was either an overtime or late in the third period where uh, Jonathan Chichu had oh. a point-blank chance and Dwayne Rollison comes across the crease and yeah. absolutely robs him with an incredible glove save biggest save of the series arguably biggest save of the entire playoff run because that was labeled for the top corner and if it goes in the Oilers are down three nothing and they're not coming yeah. back yeah and not only did Rollison save the series but the Oilers went on to win that game and four straight to yes. uh end up taking the series four to two after dropping the first two games on the road in San Jose I mean what an incredible series, especially after the the emotional high that came from defeating the President's Trophy winning Detroit Red Wings in the first round. And now you're going to the Western Conference final for the first time in 14 years. It was incredible time to be an Oilers fan. Yes, it sure was. And, and the following series, I managed to get tickets again, actually was from my brother's mom that I got tickets for all of these games. So it was one of those relationships that just carried on throughout my life. So that... The next game I went to was the uh Is this the game, same person game. that gave you the Oilers jersey? Yep. In 70? Wow. I mean, what yep. a connection, hey? Like yeah, that's it's it's a it's uh I've always she, she's always treated me like one as one of her own kids and I've treated her like a like a mother too. So it's it's been one of those relationships that has just has carried on um throughout my entire life. So And you know what almost three decades would have passed between when you received that jersey for the first time and this two thousand six playoff run. So, you know, to maintain that that not only that relationship, but to have that that connection that it it all started with her in nineteen seventy nine when the Oilers came into the league and here you are in two thousand six and the Oilers are going back to the final for the first time since the glory days. Just uh it must have been uh it must have been a great time for you as an Oilers fan, and that's a really nice story to hear uh, the connection. Yes, it was. Um, it was a really good game, too. It was game three versus the Ducks. I believe the Oilers went up 4 nothing, or was it 4 nothing? Maybe 5-1 in that game, and and Anaheim stormed back. I think LaRock scored, I think he might have got two or three goals that game. He had he had probably his best game as an Oiler. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was. Such a fun time to be uh, an Oilers fan, even despite the fact that they ended up ultimately losing um, in seven games against yeah. Carolina. It was it was just a fantastic run, memorable. Uh, that's the most fun I've ever had watching hockey. I was 17 at the time, you know, perfect age to enjoy that playoff run. I wish I could have come out to Edmonton to see a game. Uh, I did see my first Oilers game earlier that season, but uh, I mean. I didn't even have my first job at that point, so to get a to get a ticket to go see a playoff game in Edmonton would have been a, a pretty big ask uh, for my parents. So unfortunately, I didn't get to. I, I finally saw my first ever uh, playoff game last spring when I went to Game One between the Oilers and Kings, and unfortunately, they 
they lost that one four to three, but still uh, it was something that I had been waiting my whole life to experience a, a live playoff game and uh, still a lot of great memories from going to that one. Um, and yeah, let's, uh, let's just go on to now your time at Rogers place. I mean, the building's been open for seven years now. Uh, how many games do you try to go see a year at Rogers place? Um, I usually get to a handful of games per year. It depends on my schedule. Like I was able to get to the Columbus game, uh, last week, which we're going to talk mm-hmm. about here soon. Yeah. Um, I have been able to get to three, a total of three, uh, playoff games at, uh, Rogers place thus far. And let's just say, um, I'm hesitant to go to another one because they've lost them all in overtime. Oh, so I, I was able to get to the very first game, very first playoff game in Rogers place. And they lost to San Jose. Yeah. They lost to San Jose in overtime. I got to game three against Anaheim the next round, in the same seats lost in overtime again. And then last year, I believe it was game, was it game five? They ended up losing in overtime. I actually just got back to my seat from, an extended washroom, well, not extended washroom break, but extended lineup to get to yeah. the washroom. Oh, yeah. And just as I got back to my seat, uh, Kempe kind of danced around. Um, Keith went in and scored. Yeah, that so was a went, tough one, too. Oh, yeah. So I'm I'm double thinking here moving forward that maybe I'm just, am I bad luck or is it just the way things are unfolding? <laughs> well, there's been some overtime wins, too. I mean, the day our goal in 2017 was mm-hmm. an awesome one. Uh, that would have been a, a good one to be at for sure. Uh, and, and what would you say the the best game that you've attended at Rogers Place was so far? The best game at, Rod, at Rogers Place? Since they moved over here. Yeah. Is there one game that stands out for you that you've seen? I, I'd have to say it would have been the second game of back-to-backs against Calgary after the, the rumble in the Dome. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. That was definitely... Uh, um, the Cassie and Kachuk fight. Yes, yes. Well, the Cassian ragdoll of Kachuk, but yeah, <laughs> it was definitely, uh, that one was probably highlighted for sure as one of the most exciting ones to be to for sure. Yeah, and the Oilers came out on top in that one too. So that's, They did. That's a, a good way to cap it off. Well, man, that's awesome. I appreciate you sharing all those stories. And it's just always great to talk to Oilers fans from of different ages and just hear, you know, the, their memories of growing up with this team and uh, you are one of the lucky ones that has been there right from the Oilers start in the NHL. So I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. All right, let's break down the Oilers last two games now, starting with their 3-2 overtime loss against the Columbus Blue Jackets last Wednesday. The Oilers came into the game on a six-game winning streak and were looking to make it seven straight victories for the first time in more than 20 years. However, they had to settle for a single point after losing to the worst team in the league on home ice. The Oilers were all over them in the first 10 minutes of the game and had a few good chances to score, but they really took their foot off the gas after that, and it cost them. Troy, Jonas Corpusello stopped 34 of 36 shots for the Blue Jackets, but do you think that loss had to do more with the Oilers not bringing their A game against a weaker opponent than Corpusello stealing one for the Blue Jackets? I think it was a combination of the two, because if you if you look back at, at the game in the whole as a whole, they started out very well the first 10 minutes, um, then kind of fell into a, a lull where I think Columbus just kind of played the orders to sleep type of thing. And we ended up getting the 2-1 lead. And I think 
the the save that stood out to me was was highway robbery. Um, Corpusalo on Drysidle on on the power play because that would have put them up three to one. And I think if they get that third goal, I think Columbus probably just folds the tent and and goes away. But it seemed after that save, Columbus really seemed to to turn things around, and the Oilers just were not um, crisp that game. Um, their passes were poor; they couldn't complete passes. They're icing the puck. Um, McDavid didn't look like himself. They all looked tired. It just, and then it got to overtime. And it was that same kind of thing. It was just. It just wasn't a very motivated club that didn't seem to be interested in playing at all that night. And we seem, we, we used to see that quite a bit from this team, but now it's, it's, you see it a lot less. And as they've gotten better here as the season's gone on, um, you see it less and less now. But I think their starts at home and their play at home overall has been kind of worrisome to me. I think, think we're at 13, 11, and, and three, which isn't ideal. It's getting better, but, um, yeah, that loss was tough. I mean, of course, I, I was there, so it makes it even worse. But um, it just didn't look like they were – definitely didn't play their best game. I thought Columbus played, you know, probably their best game. And they lost to a bunch of guys that I really – honestly, going into it, I didn't know who they were. So um, it was what – if there was a scheduled win in uh, this entire month, I think that would have been it. Of course, it ended up – not the way we'd expected, but they did manage to bounce back in the next game against Chicago. Yeah. I mean, Dreisaitl in particular, I thought had a pretty rough night. Yes. That was easily his worst game of the season. And it's not something you usually see from him because he's almost always on top of his game. I didn't think Darnell Nurse had a, a great game either. Tyson Berry was another one who really struggled. He got caught up ice in an odd man rush that, you know, fortunately for him missed the net, but, uh, even McDavid, you know, he did have the the one assist on the Hyman's uh, power play goal, but it just it seemed like the passes were off all night. Mm-hmm. They they couldn't complete two passes in a row. Uh, Jesse Pugliarvi, I thought, you know, stood out fairly well in that game. Uh, but another guy like Nuge, he just it seemed like too many guys were having a down night on the on the same night. And when you're just having all your stars kind of struggling, it it's not a recipe for success. So, uh, and despite not playing their best hockey, the Oilers still had a 2-1 lead with under nine minutes to go in the third period before giving up a soft goal to tie it. Yep. And while I'm glad they were able to grab a point, it's frustrating to let that extra point slip away when the Pacific Division standings are so tight, isn't it? It, it certainly is. I mean, I think the, the division title here is still within reach. I mean, the, the goal is to make the playoffs, but to be within three points um, of the division lead right now is good. That being said, um, they're really struggling at home to maintain leads. I don't know how many losses that is in the last 10 of having a lead or that late in a game or going into the third period. Like Good teams need to close out those 2 nothing leads and those 2-1 leads late. Um, they really struggle at home. I really don't don't know why. It just seems something that's plagued them this year. It's been better as of late in yes. January. But I will agree with you, in the first half of the season especially, the Oilers were a much better road team than a home team. And even in December alone, they blew multiple 2 nothing leads on home ice. And that's just something you can't do. No, not at all. Not at all. Not with, not with uh, 
every point meaning so much. Um, that point shouldn't it shouldn't really matter at the end of the season, but I mean it's one of those games that you just can't let slide away regardless of the competition. So um, yeah, it was that was a tough one. That was a tough one to be at because it just nothing was going right. It, it didn't seem to me at any point that the Oilers were interested in 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 playing, let alone winning the game. So it was a it was a tough one to be at. There was a lot of booze going on throughout the game um, that I could pick up. And yeah, it was just one of those ones you want to put behind you and move forward. And, you know, I'm almost surprised that the Oilers haven't been as good in overtime this year as they have in previous years, because normally McDavid and Dreisaitl are always money in, in overtime. And it's almost a guaranteed win when they get to three on three. We've seen that over the last several years, but this year in particular, they have scored a couple overtime goals or combined for a couple, I should say, but um, They've dropped four games in overtime now. And yes, it still is a, a point in the standings. We have to remember that, you know, it, it wasn't all for naught. They did come away with something on that night, mm-hmm. uh, a night when they probably didn't deserve any. They were still able to pull a point out of it. But I would like to see them capitalize on these opportunities a little more often, because when you get to three on three and you're able to have the two best players in the world out there and, you know, one of the best skating defensemen in the league and Darnell Nurse. It gives you a pretty good opportunity to, I, I would say, 75% chance that they should win most of their overtime games. And this year, they've dropped more than I'd like to see. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's definitely been difficult to surmise what, what's going on with them in overtime. Um, you know, we've seen them have so much success as a duo going forward. I'm just not exactly convinced that... Um, that the, the way that they're getting those guys going in overtime is the right is the right mode. Like I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of Darnell Nurse, but I'm not a big fan of Darnell Nurse's transition with the puck. Uh, I think he's really struggled this year um, as outlet passes, getting the puck up and out of his zone and, and to any of those guys because yours, especially with um, having McDavid and Drysaddle on the ice at any time. And that's I mean, not the strength of his game either, right? Like he's a guy that likes to skate the puck up the ice instead right. of pass it up. You got a guy like Bouchard who can make that perfect stretch pass to send a guy in on a breakaway. And Tyson Berry can do it for to sure. an extent too. But for Darnell Nurse, he's more likely to skate that puck end to end than hit McDavid in stride. And, you know, you it's something that you would probably like to see from your number one defenseman a little more often. And maybe he'll only ever be an average passer, but... You'd like to see it happen maybe a little more often than it is. For sure. And I, I think, I don't know, everyone likes to play armchair coach, but I think if, if I'm starting the overtime, I'm obviously going to have McDavid and Dreisaitl Definitely. together. I wouldn't even think- split them up despite not getting as many results in three-on-three three as they would have liked this season. You can say, well, you know, throw Nuge out there or, you know, give, give Connor a, a shift with uh, Hyman or something. And, it's not that I'm opposed to those two. I think that those guys could still get the job done, but why not play your best hand anytime that you can have all that extra space out there for two scoring champions to go on the ice and work their magic? I just think you can't go away from McDavid and Dreisaitl, even if it has ended up in a, a few overtime losses this year. Absolutely. And like, like we said, overall, it was a pretty disappointing effort from the group. 
uh, I, I thought some of the depth guys played all right, but definitely a, a, an off night for most of Edmonton's stars. I think the most glaring stat from this game was that the Oilers had 27 giveaways while the Blue Jackets had just 10. And that's just unacceptable from this team and a team that wants to contend. Troy, the Oilers still have an 8-2-1 record against bottom 10 teams in the league, but do you think they just underestimated their opponent, or was it just a result of having too many days off after that big win against the Canucks the previous Saturday? It, it could have been, and, you know, I'm not sure what... Uh, I think the players, they get into a routine and they get into a rhythm, and I think sometimes um, when you're playing every second night, you get into... Uh, a schedule and your body's used to playing and you're used to doing the same thing it's repetitive i think sometimes you get that hiccup that break that kind of throws throws off uh the balance and your focus and whatever else the case may be it's like you said it seemed like far too many of them were um the same player that night making the same mistake i think there was one at one point on the same shift i think dry turned the puck over like three times along the boards I don't know how they never got yeah. the puck out, but it was like three consecutive turnovers um, over and over and over. It's like, holy cow. Like, And even if you're playing a weak team, like the Blue Jackets still have some skilled players on the team. They yeah. have Johnny Goudreau. They have Patrick Laine. And these guys are not the ones that you want to give an opportunity to uh, 15 feet away from the net right in the slot. It's going to end up in the back of your net if you keep doing that over and over again. And that's uncharacteristic from Leon Dreisaitl. It's not something we normally see. I, I just chalk it up to they had a, a rough night. Maybe their their head wasn't fully in it. And it could be a combination of the things too. Like I said, they they had the win over the Canucks. Then they get a day off. Then there's two days of practice. You don't want to make too many excuses for them, but I would have just liked them to keep rolling and played the, you know, two nights later as opposed to having to sort of wait for a while and sort of let that momentum sort of die off. Yeah, I think we've seen in the short time that uh, Kane had has been back how important he's been to the team and not having him in there for that one shouldn't be an excuse because if we're being honest, the Oilers probably beat Columbus nine times out of ten in, oh, that, same, in that same scenario. So um, it just shows that, you know, one player, if you lose one player, that's as important as, as Kane has been um, to the Oilers. Even if it's only for a game, it throws off, maybe throws off the chemistry, throws off the energy, it throws throws everything off for a bit of a loop. Um, yeah. I don't know, it just seemed seemed to be far too many passengers. There were really no, uh, no pilots that night. I thought, uh, I wasn't particularly, um, I didn't like the, the second goal that uh, Skinner had given up. Um, I thought other yeah, than that, it was a tough one, especially yeah. like the Oilers have given up a lot of goals in the last 10 minutes of the game this season. And when you're trying to close out a game and, and lock down those two points, you'd like to see that everyone is committed defensively at that point in the game. And, you know, we're going to shut things down now and the other team's not getting anything. And it's been a problem for them letting in one or multiple goals late in games. And it's, it's cost them a few times. So, uh, that's something that I hope that they can clean up and, and fix going forward here. For sure. I think at, at the end of the day, I think the order's biggest key is um, once they get to the playoffs, because I've been confident that they've been a playoff team, regardless of their start and all of that, um, goaltending is going to be very important to them, not only down the stretch, but once they get into the playoffs. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see who Jay Woodcroft turns to and which one of these two goalies can. Um, 
be the stronger of the two because if if ideally they're both playing at the same level at that nine ten um, save percent number, which which I like. I'm, I'm a big stats guy when it comes to goalies. I think if your goalie's saving ninety one percent of the shots, you have a really good chance to win. Especially because, with the firepower that the Oilers have uh, too, right? Yes. Absolutely, because I think right now as a standing sit, I think the Oilers are second in goals four. So they have no issue scoring goals, which they shouldn't with the two guys that they have up front and the career years that not only they're having, but also the Hymans are having. And um, Nugent Hopkins' resurgence this year has been um, incredible. It's really I've always been a, a fan of uh, Ryan's since his draft year. And to see him um, take last year and just kind of throw it out the window and – come to this season and producing at a you know at a career best yeah. rate Derek Ryan has been a, a solid fourth liner and just looking at the stats here the Oilers actually lead the league in goals for with 187 right now and they rank second in the league in goals for per game at 3.74 so really if you can bank on close to four goals a night for this team which we've sort of become accustomed to when you have the two best players in the world and the best surrounding cast that they've had since I would say at least their time in the NHL and maybe the best supporting cast that the Oilers have had in close to three decades. When you can put that kind of offense out there, you're going to win a lot of games. If, if your goaltender can keep it to two or less, the Oilers are going to win more often than not. Absolutely. I think Connor, Mc, Connor McDavid himself says it said it best when he says, if you score four goals in this league, that should be enough to win. Oh, definitely. All right, uh, let's talk about the Oilers game on Hockey Night in Canada now. And for the second straight contest, the Oilers played the last place team in the league. However, this time they picked up an impressive 7-3 win over the Chicago Blackhawks to go into the bye week with a 28-18-4 record. This is the first time all season the Oilers have been 10 games over 500. Troy, the Oilers took an early lead thanks to a Tyson Berry power play goal. And with the assist, Connor McDavid recorded his league-leading 90th point of the season and extended his point streak to 12 games. McDavid has now recorded a point in 29 of his last 30 games played. And even more impressively, McDavid became the first NHL player to record seven consecutive 90-point seasons since Steve Eiserman from 1986-87 through 1992-93. McDavid also picked up two more assists in the game, giving him 92 points in 50 games prior to the All-Star game. Uh, Troy, like, we've come to expect great things from McDavid since he came into the league eight years ago. But are you amazed that he's only eight points away from 100 before the end of January? You know, I'm, I'm really not. Um, his trajectory has, has been um, moving to this point, I think, since long before he was drafted. I mean, Connor McDavid is, is one of the most dynamic players that I've ever seen with the puck at full speed. I mean, there's he's the only guy that, that can do the things that he does at, at that speed. Um, that just puts him, you know, at a whole new, at a level above everyone else. I mean, if he's got the puck, it's going to end up in the crease area, you know, eight times out of 10. So, it doesn't matter who who you are, as long as you're following the puck or you got a nose for the net. If you're just able to to cash in some on some of the garbage that he leaves behind, I mean, you're going to put up points. But the, the way he's doing it this year, you know, you keep you keep wondering like, what's what's he got next? What's he going to do next? I mean, 
wasn't it uh, Leon said this year, I think he can score 70 goals. Yeah. I know he can do it. And it, and then, you know, they talked to McDavid after. He's like, that's not that's not my focus this year. Well, if it's not your focus, Connor, you're, <laughs> sure, you're sure doing a heck of a job making it. Leon did say in that interview with Friedman that Connor did sort of say that he he believes he could score 60 as well. But it's just that he's he's never going to talk about himself as much as, no. you know, but obviously we we're here to talk about him and, and he gets plenty of attention as it is. And, and honestly, he deserves more for how great he is. But to think that he's at this point where he's probably going to get 100 points in the next week or so. And then from there, it's the the pursuit of 150, which is something I've been following all season. 70 goals would be great, too. I think that he might fall just short of that, although I'll never bet against McDavid. I, I could easily see him turning up his game down the stretch and, and getting there. But I really want him to get 150 this year. I've always said that I think he'll do it at least once in his career. And if it's going to happen, it's probably going to be either this year or the next couple of years. So he's given himself enough of a head start and he's on pace for 151 right now. So all he has to do is maintain his pace through the final 32 games and he'll get there. And um, as we've seen historically, McDavid uh, ramps his game up a few notches down the stretch. So he might even get there and then some. Absolutely. I mean, he's every game that he enters, there's opportunity for um, highlight reels, hat tricks, not just for him, for just about anyone on, on his team that's playing with him. I mean, have Some you ever seen a player create more breakaways or prime scoring chances for themselves than McDavid? Um, the only player that I think that's been as dynamic that I've that I've seen play, I, I think you know, Pavel Burry is not the same player that McDavid is, but Burry was so quick and his ability to, to make plays with the puck at such a high rate of speed was was you know unmatched. So. I'd have to I'd have to say Burry is probably the closest player I think as far as skill and speed combined. Like when he's got the puck on a stick, you just you just can see something something amazing is about to happen, or the puck's going to end up in the crease or in the net or somewhere around it. And um, the Oilers had never had a player like this. Um, I mean, with all due respect to Gretzky, Gretzky was very um, methodical in, in his. Uh, approach to the game he wasn't the fastest player he always he was, was a master the, chess player absolutely like he is you know i think he says it best it's not um it's it's imagine where the puck's going to be or end up i think is, is part of his quote i can't i can't remember exactly but uh, go where the was, puck's going to be not where it's been yeah yeah exactly so um but mcdavid he just takes that puck and he puts it where he wants to like he just when he gets into high speed I can't imagine me and those defenders skating backwards and having to, you know, turn. And I think the only player that, that can match him um, and and on one, one-on-one rushes is probably Kale McCarr at this point. I, I don't think anybody else has been able to um, control him. I think you can just try to keep him in, keep him in, in line and hope that he doesn't score. Um, and, it's just, you know, McDavid's the fastest player to ever play the game of hockey. Yeah. And he can change direction on a dime, which makes yes. him almost impossible to contain for defenders. And even if you can contain him for most of the night, all he needs is one chance. And I think back to that game against Tampa Bay, the Oilers were up 3-1, Tampa scores two straight goals to tie it 3-3. 
And early in the third period, McDavid just gets a little bit of daylight and he blows past the defender, uh, drives hard to the net, gets the puck just over the line on his second attempt. And right there, it's a 4-3 lead and the Oilers go on to win. But it just takes one chance. So even if you can shut him down for most of the night, if he can get just that one opportunity, he's going to make it count. And uh, some nights he gets a lot more than one. And, uh, you know, it's it's just incredible to watch what he can do with the puck in full flight. Yeah, absolutely. He just keeps coming in waves. And like I said, I can't imagine being a defender, having oh. to, uh, you know, defend him for 25 minutes a night or whatever your the job is. The coach can't even give you any uh any crap about that when you get back to the bench because what are you going to say like i i had him i was staying with him but yeah he is just nothing you can do he's the he's the fastest skater like i said that hockey's ever seen and uh he can make a lot of these defensemen look like peewee defensemen the way he's able to go around them yeah i do i do find it interesting i heard uh i'm not sure if it's been confirmed or not but i've heard that he's not competing in the fastest skater event this year yes i'm trying to remember who put that out there uh, it was someone in Edmonton media who said that it might have been Ryan Rashog. Uh, he wants to compete in the accuracy shooting event instead. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of cool that, you know, he's I mean, I would love to see him win a fourth straight or not fourth straight. Uh, he did win three straight. And then the last two he he didn't win that he competed in. But I'd love to see him win a fourth title as fast as skater. But I think he said, you know, I've been there, done that. I want to try something else. And, you know, good for him. Like, wouldn't it be something if he does win the accuracy shooting? Absolutely. Absolutely. It would be, uh, and, and, you know, to see him win it, would it really surprise us? No. And, and I mean, the all-star game is designed mainly for kids and it's a, it's a great opportunity to have all the best players in the league come to one arena and get to play together and interact. And, you know, the, the 11 year olds that are watching the game get to see all their heroes play in this fantasy type scenario where it's like, Oh, what if this guy played with this guy? Um, it's, not the best hockey you're going to see all season. There's there's no hitting, and they're all skating at about 75%. But, you know, the the skills competition is still something that I really enjoy watching every year. Do, do you normally tune in to, to see those events that Connor and Leon compete in? Yeah, I try to catch, um, if my work schedule allows it, I definitely I tune in to the, the skills event. I'm, I'm not, uh, I won't make time to watch the actual all-star game. Um, uh, which is interesting because I remember being a kid, um, the Campbell Conference versus the Wales Conference. That was always a big event for me to catch every year if I could watch it. You know, back in the days when the Oilers would have eight or nine players on yeah. a team at a time. In 86, they set the record with, with nine players going. Yeah. I mean, the, the Oilers of the 80s literally were an all-star team. Yes, they were. They were. And, you know, Wayne Gretzky... I've I've heard him say this that he never turned down an opportunity to play in the All Star game because he knew that there were so many guys on his team that would love the opportunity to just go once and he yep. ended up playing in eighteen of the twenty in, he played in eighteen All Star games in the twenty years he played in the NHL and I believe the only two that he didn't compete in were the ninety four ninety five season because the the lockout shortened season canceled the All Star game I believe. And he was injured in 92-93, so he didn't make the All-Star game that year. But he was there year after year. And you'd like to see players go. Like, I mean, I know Ovechkin has turned it down multiple times and taken the one-game suspension for not showing up. And I'm not here to, like, yeah, you know, 
say that you know Ovechkin's a bad guy for not going or whatever. I'm, I'm not doing that, but I mean, it is a, still a it's something on your resume to to get to go to the All Star game, and you, you look at a guy like uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins or Zach Hyman. I mean, if every team didn't have to have a representative at the All-Star game. Those two would deserve to be there. And I thought that after Matty Benares was injured and was unable to go, that Zach Hyman would be the replacement, not Chandler Stevenson. Yeah, it's it's curious. I was very curious of that. I was more, more kind of dumbfounded that they weren't able to find a replacement from Seattle. Yeah. I mean, because it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And if you're not going to go with a player from his team, Go with Zach Hyman, who's one of the best players in the Pacific Division this year. He deserves to be there. And let's talk about him right now. He had another three-point game against the Blackhawks as well. He has 16 points during his seven-game point streak and was recently named the NHL First Star of the Week. Hyman scored 27 goals in his first season in Edmonton, and he's now just one away from tying that total with 32 games to play. I mean, he's on pace for over 40. Troy, what can you say about the career year Hyman's having? Um, it's remarkable. I, ne- I never, I never saw this coming. I always saw Hyman as a very um, work-like player, a lot like Ryan Smith was, um, with the potential to score forty. I thought was a ceiling for him. Still think it is. Um, this is probably going to be a career year for Hyman. I don't know what else, you know, how we could duplicate this if he can. I mean, that's. That's amazing bargain that the Oilers are getting on that contract. Um, I don't know. There's not really much else you can say about Hyman, but there's a guy that just loves to play. He's so determined with every shift. He gets on the ice. He doesn't take a shift off. Um, he puts everything everything into his, his ability to um, control the puck um, in tight around the net and just block off defenders um, using his lower body is – is 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 quite a thing to behold. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm becoming a big uh, Hyman fan actually. As I'm talking to you here, I'm staring at my I got two blank jerseys, Oilers jerseys here that need a number on them, and, and I'm leaning heavily towards putting a number 18 on one of them. 18 would look good on that, I think. And uh, you know, when the Oilers signed Hyman, and we were hearing about uh, a seven-year deal, I think the the reaction from a lot of Oilers fans on Twitter was they wish it was closer to a five-year deal as opposed to a seven-year deal. And that, oh, you know, well, he's 29 when he's signing this. What's that deal going to look like at the end? That never concerned me in the first place because I'm concerned with winning a Stanley Cup right yeah. now. Yeah. And Hyman gives the Oilers a better chance to win a Stanley Cup present day. If they win a cup next year and that contract doesn't look so great six years down the road, I'm fine with that. Okay, That's because right. you you have another Stanley Cup in your trophy case at Rogers Place. That's the whole goal here. And not only has he lived up to the contract, He's exceeded it so far by leaps and bounds. Even if he just stayed at the level he was at last year as a 27-goal, 54-point player, I think most Oilers fans would say, wow, that contract has turned out great. We have a guy who's pushing for 30 goals, and he plays on the power play. He penalty kills. He works harder than anyone else on the ice. He digs pucks out for his more skilled line mates. But he does all that, and now he's producing at an elite level, too. And even though he's on pace for 45 goals and 99 points this season, I don't know if he's 
ever going to replicate this and it's going to be a, a thing that we can expect from him year after year, or if this is going to be the best season of his career by a mile and, and he never comes close to replicating it. Even so, the way that he's playing right now, he's given the Oilers a chance to go on a deep run. And the fact that he's at a $5.5 million cap hit and he's playing like a $10 million player, it has to be considered one of the best value contracts in the NHL. Absolutely. And I was, I was very hesitant with, uh, with the term of the deal. I was just looking at the contract by itself and not looking at the big picture and, and the window of, of winning here that we have with the players that we have under contract. And I was worried about, you know, his age because we just, we just got ourselves out from under a contract like that with um, Lucic, mm-hmm. uh, who's just, who we're finally just finishing paying off this year, the last of the $750,000. But I was worried about that. But for him to gradually get better here, and if this is his peak, and if he can go back to what he was last year and and kind of maintain that towards the end, I think, you know, as far as value contracts go, I mean, the Oilers hit a home. Ken Holland needs a lot of credit for um, getting Hyman here under that deal for sure. Yeah, that was probably the best contract that Ken Holland has signed since he came to Edmonton in 2019. And you could put the Ryan Nugent Hopkins contract up there too. Not only did Nuge uh, agree to an eight-year pact to stay in Edmonton, but he took almost a $1 million haircut on what he was making. So this is a guy who wants to spend his entire career in Edmonton and is willing to take less money to make that happen. You don't usually see that when a player's like this was his opportunity to hit his home run contract. Mm -hmm. He was already making six million dollars a year for the previous seven seasons. He could have went to the market and I'm sure that some team would have paid him more than six. Uh, Maybe he would have even went to his hometown Vancouver Canucks. I'm sure they would have loved to have Nuge. But he signs an eight year contract for five point one million a season with a full no trade clause. This is a guy who wants to be an Oiler for life, and he's probably going to be the first player to ever go start to finish with the yeah. Oilers. Hopefully, McDavid and Dreisaitl and Nurse will join him as well. I mean, Nurse is also signed to a, an eight-year contract that just started this year. But uh, this is the core that they've built around, and to have all four of these players pushing for 100 points, that's just phenomenal. It's something I never would have even expected. This is 1980s-type <laughs> offense that we're seeing, like, Gretzky, Messier, Curry, Anderson, like the four forwards all in that 100-point range. And I just never would have anticipated that coming with uh, with this group. I mean, McDavid and Dreisaitl, that's a, that's a lock for 100-plus points every year. But for Nugent Hopkins and Hyman to be there, just this is a season that they can't waste. They have to take advantage of everyone having a career year and go on a deep run. Yeah, for sure, because like you said earlier, to um... – to expect the, the Hymans and uh, Nugent Hopkins to replicate this season is, is a is a tall ask for next year. So um, I think they're still going to be productive players. I'm yes. not saying that Hyman's going to drop off. And even if he goes back to being a 55 to 60 point player at five and a half million years, he's still living up to his contract. Sure. It's just we're just seeing him play like a nine or ten million dollar player this year. Mm hmm. And you see, you see it a lot with a lot of teams. Um, if you go back just over the last five or six years, I think if you can pinpoint career years for certain players on certain teams, it all 
kind of emulates towards, you know, the larger goal of the, of the Stanley Cup, like uh, Braden Point comes to mind, uh, Sorelli with the, mm-hmm. with the Lightning. Like, there's every team, it seems, has that has these, this nucleus of players. Um, they have a year where everybody just kind of hits gold all at the same time. And it happened in 2016-17 for the Oilers, too. There yeah. was a lot of guys on that team that had career years. I mean, look, yeah. Patrick Maroon had... 27 goals i know this isn't a career high for milan lucic but he had 23 goals um just when you think about throughout that lineup how many guys even when jordan eberly had kind of a slow year by his standards you had leon dreisaitl emerging as a star player with 77 points that year mcdavid in his second season gets 100 points just everything was clicking at the right time for that group and we're starting to see some of that happen again this year Absolutely. And it's fun to watch. Definitely. And and one last thing I'll just say on it is that there's a lot of attention paid to some of the higher played players on teams when they don't live up to their contracts or, or at least what the fans perceive not living up to their contracts. Darnell Nurse is a lightning rod for criticism in Edmonton. I've always been a huge Darnell Nurse fan. He's still the Oilers' best defenseman, despite what some fans might think. And, you know, I, even if he does turn over the puck more than they'd like, if you look at what he contributes at both ends of the ice and the fact that he is, like I said, such a great skating defenseman, uh, can penalty kill. You can use him on the power play if you need to, although he's not their first option normally. He is still the team's best defenseman. And it just seems like whenever he has a turnover or an, a bad night, they always point to his $9.25 million contract and say, you know, look at this guy, look how much we're overpaying him. I'd love to see some positivity the other way too, that when a guy like Hyman has a great night, who's loved in the market and so is Nuge, but let's pay more attention to when guys are uh, exceeding expectations and uh, living up to their contract and then some, as opposed to, you know, criticizing a player every time that they, you know, have a, a, a bad turnover in their own zone. Yeah, I said it when when the day that he signed that contract, I was worried that he was going to get the Sean Horkoff treatment, and it's it started. You can see it. Um, he got a full no trade clause too, and that's always the frustrating thing when people are like, oh, trade him, trade him, and I'm just and I'm not saying it's all Oilers fans, but there is like a very vocal community it seems like online that really yeah. doesn't like the guy, and I'll never understand it because think about where this team would be without Darnell Nurse. Uh, that would leave a huge hole on the left side. Even during the playoffs last year, keep in mind, he got hurt with four games to go in the regular season. And he basically battled through an injury for that entire playoff run. And maybe some of that is still carrying over to this year. Uh, he he hasn't always looked as dynamic when he's skating with the puck as he has in the past. And I just wonder if some of that's lingering a little bit. Yeah, and I'm surprised we're having this conversation of how important a guy like Duncan Keith was to this roster. Yeah, um, that was a big help. And, and he was another guy who you thought, well, he's past his prime. But even though he wasn't the player he was five years earlier, he he still was such an important piece in the top four for the Oilers. And I think a really big mentor for Evan Bouchard as well. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think what Keith wasn't, wasn't, we didn't see the best of Duncan Keith, but what I think we did see was enough. He was enough to get us through and help us get to three rounds. And I think losing him 
and the ex and not filling the void with the expectations apparently being one of uh, Kulak or Roberg taking a massive step into becoming a you know a number f- or a second pair left defenseman. Yeah, um, that hasn't happened yet. Um, that's why we're in the search here for someone to fill that void here over the coming weeks, months, and and a year moving forward. But um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting how things have 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 kind of turned and. This team seems to be getting better as the season's gone on. Um, the, the the holes we know where the holes are in the lineup. We had some holes earlier on in the season. I think Campbell's found his game here now. He's playing a lot better. Um, I think the goaltending has kind of sorted itself out here now. Cross cross the fingers. Seven one and zero in his last eight games. I mean, this he's finally found his game and it took him a little while and even Wayne Gretzky said in an interview earlier this season on Sportsnet that it, it often takes new players especially a new goaltender when he's coming to a, a new team in a new city to it takes them a little while to get used to their surroundings and and settle in and it did for you know three months he was almost relegated to the backup role behind Skinner but we're seeing the goalie that the Oilers thought they were getting last summer Absolutely, and uh, we we wouldn't be where we are now without both him and Skinner playing and at the both, levels that they are. Yep, and they're both going to be needed down the stretch. Like I said, they're basically going to be playing every other day for over two months, and you can't ride one guy that whole time, especially in the Western Conference when travel is as heavy as it is. Absolutely. Uh, I want to also ask you about Evander Kane. You did touch on how much he was missed in that game against the Blue Jackets. Uh, when he was dealing with a personal matter in San Jose, but he scored his first goal since returning from injury um, a couple of weeks ago. How big do you think that was for his confidence to finally get one? And I mean, how much were the physical elements that he brings missed during his absence as well? Well, I think he's he's a very uh, he's a very interesting player because he's he's something that the Oilers have always been looking for. In, to find it in, in one player, I think because every team wants to find, wants to have its own version of Vander Kane, someone who brings physicality, someone who can score, and someone who isn't isn't scared to get his nose dirty by any means. And even just watching him score, it was just like his his uh, is like he shrugged it off. He scored a goal. It's like, oh well, this is what I'm here to do. Like it's just like another day at the office for him. So. Um, He's a very important piece, and and he was a light, lighten another lightning rod of criticism as far as you know his off ice um, problems that he's he's been having. There's been kind of black cloud has kind of followed him wherever he's gone. But I think he's he's settled in. I think in Edmonton now, and he's put himself out there on uh, all his different social media pages, um, helping with the community and trying to trying to, you know, recreate his image in a way that I think is a positive for anyone that's paying attention to him. And I think he's been a great citizen by all accounts since he's absolutely, come to Absolutely. I mean, he's, he's doing all the right things. If this is, this is, if this is the person that Evander Kane um, wanted everyone to believe he was, then he's, he's doing a hell of a job showing it. I mean, skating with that little nine-year-old girl that's uh, that has brain cancer and giving her a signed jersey and just interacting with her while he was injured. I, I, that was such a, you know, a, a nice story to see. And, you know, it just shows the real human side there. And also, I, I think, you know, 
donating, what was it, $20,000 of his own money to make sure that inner city kids all had a present on Christmas morning. That's something that he didn't have to do. And uh, the fact that he just went out of his way to make sure that some underprivileged kids, uh, you know, had had something to smile about on Christmas morning, that that, uh, shows a lot of character as well. And I just think that these... These things you don't hear about enough. You you hear about the um, the troubled past or rumored troubled past that goes on with Kane, but maybe not enough about uh, the things that he's doing as of right now. And like I said, from from everything that I've heard and seen, it it seems like uh, seems like this is a, a working out here, and it's a good fit for the team. He brings what they need on the ice. He's a perfect fit with McDavid, especially when he's healthy and and on top of his game and you know, he's slowly working his way back. And like I said, anything he can do off the ice, like these little extra things, it's just, it's basically just icing on the cake. Absolutely. He's adoring himself to uh, uh, a fan base that had a lot of questions about his character. I think um, he's answering, he's answering the belts to all of them now. Um, it's just, it, it's just, it's a, it's a part of this leadership group that I think is just developing now. And I think we've seen it really come to a, to a, to its height at yeah. the end of the, the game against Chicago. Um, there's been a lot of questions about um, the leadership. Is, is McDavid a, a good leader? Is he able to, you know, do all the things that, you know, leaders can do? I think we saw that um, on its own in the playoffs last year where he literally just took the entire team on his back. And I've never process- bought the leadership thing too. Yeah. And, and sorry to cut you off, but that is just... It, it's a ridiculous statement to say he's not a leader. I mean, he's the youngest captain in NHL history. They wouldn't have given him the C at 19 if they didn't think that he was going to be the face and the leader of this team going forward. Now, he might not be the, the biggest raw, raw guy in the dressing room to get everyone fired up, but you can lead by example on the ice too. And when you have the, the best player in the world, who's also probably the hardest working guy on the team and you know devotes himself to the game of hockey more than anyone else, if you're a player in that dressing room and you see how hard your captain is working to improve himself and get better each and every year when he's already the best player in the world, that should motivate you to step your game up and say, you know, I have to keep getting better as well. Exactly. Um, and, you know, his leadership, I think it's unquestioned. Anyone who's questioning it now, I don't think is really paying attention. And I think a lot of it is um, the outside noise outside of Edmonton. I mean, since the day he was drafted, there's been a lot of jealousy throughout the league, and I get it. I mean, in a perfect world, the Oilers would never be in a position to have an opportunity to draft him at all. Um, they got really lucky on in 2015, let's not kid ourselves. And 14. I mean, they got the best yeah. player in back-to-back drafts. Absolutely. And, you know, who would have thought that, you know, Leon Dreisaitl, who was picked third overall, would turn out to be a better player than all of the Oilers first round or first overall picks at the start of the decade. So the Oilers have been extremely fortunate through the draft. And that was a reward for the fan base for sticking with this team through the leanest of years. (laughs) It, it doesn't get worse than the decade of dark darkness. And uh, I would, I would go through all of those brutal seasons again, uh, if it meant that Connor McDavid was waiting uh, at the, at the end. I was, absolutely, I'm, I'm with you there. And one more thing I'd like to point out when it comes to yeah. uh, leadership, um, we hear a lot about uh, we hear a lot of talk about Dreisaitl and his work ethic. 
I think on the ice, I think a lot of people question it just because of his, his overall body language. He doesn't seem like he's putting in a hundred percent, but one of the things that caught, caught me, um, was an interview with Clem Costin and they, so many questions about, uh, were you on the ice before, or were you in the dressing room to get ready practice before Leon? And it's from what I got from that interview, I think it's on Oilers Nation, was that it sounds to me like Leon's one of the first guys that's on the ice, and he's putting in an extra hour of time, um, whether it be before or after everyone's gone. So when it comes to work ethic and, and stuff that you see on the ice, I don't think everyone sees what happens to get to that point. So I think when it comes to Leon especially, he may not look like he's putting in the effort, but he's put in so much effort to get himself to that point. And the things that he's been able to do on the ice have been just, I mean, like you said, to get him third overall in that draft. I mean, I think, I think if you could have a redo of that draft, I think Buffalo is obviously um, he's kicking easily the, the best player that I, I thank Buffalo every day for not picking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just, Certainly upsets the alpha cart, but I mean, like Dryside overall, that's the player he is. He's very cerebral. Um, he's one of the best passers in the game, if not the best passer in the Definitely game. Definitely on the back end, he's the best at, at the very least, and and you For could sure. argue the best passer in general. McDavid's the best playmaker. Yeah. Um, in, in his ability to create chances, uh, in all different ways, but uh, in terms of like just putting. Um, a tape-to-tape pass on your teammate's stick in in full flight or just on the backhand, there's no one better than Dreisaitl. Absolutely. Okay, and let's just finish off today by talking about uh, Matt Berlin. And uh, for those who don't know, and I'm sure most people in oil country do, there could be some fans outside of uh, Edmonton who aren't aware of this story, but uh, with two minutes and change left in the game, and the Oilers holding a four-goal lead. They bring in Matt Berlin, who was signed to an ATO earlier that day while Stuart Skinner was out with an illness. And he's the goaltender for the University of Alberta Golden Bears. He played in the WHL and the AJHL. And here he is getting an opportunity to come into the game and finish out the, for the Oilers. He made one save in his two-plus minutes. And got to live out a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, his childhood dream to play for his hometown Edmonton Oilers. Uh, Troy, how cool of a moment was that to just get to see Matt Berlin in the net, even if it was only for a couple minutes, and be registered as an NHL player? It's something he'll be able to tell his grandkids about forever. Just uh, what were your thoughts when you saw uh, him skate into onto the ice and, and take the net for the Oilers? Well, when they scored the seventh goal, Eric, I was like, I think, I think it's time. I, I thought to myself, and I texted a friend of mine who, who used to play goal. I'm like, do you think you're gonna put? Do you think he's gonna put Berlin in at the end of this end of this game? And I kept, you know, the hashtag was rolling at that point, Berlin Wall and everything. Put him in the net and everything. And uh, he's like, no, I don't think he's gonna do it. He doesn't. He doesn't have the. He doesn't have the guts to do it. He won't do it. And then. Um, you could see the the gesturing that was going on on the bench and the replay later on. You could see it was just, you know, it was almost like the way Woodcroft, you know, it was almost like he was giving uh, Campbell the hook and hey kid, you're going in, like get out there, right? It wasn't it wasn't a pat on the back. Hey, and Campbell was fully on board with it too. You could see yeah. him nodding the head, like yeah, let's do it. 
Yeah, it was, uh, and it was one of those things again where uh, we talked about the leadership of this team, and and it was actually made from all from everything that I've heard uh, coming from Jay Woodcroft. It was actually McDavid's idea to it actually was. to get him on the ice. So, yeah. I mean, when you have when you have the best player in the world who, who can you know who's paying attention to everything that's on the ice, and you can see Matt Berlin sitting over there in the corner and looks at the scoreboard and looks at the coach and say, Hey, Jay, you know, why don't we get him in there? You know, it was just to see him skate on the ice and the big smile on his face. And, um, you know, his interview after, I thought he was stoic. It was almost like he he had, it wasn't his first time um, getting the Hockey Night in Canada towel, giving his interview. Um, I thought he was, he's just a, a full, he's such a pro um, for a kid that's, you know, in university. I think he also had one of four Oilers, I think, that played for the Southside Athletic Club. Yeah, he joined uh, Stuart Skinner. Uh, Tyler Benson and um, James Hamblin, and they yes. all played on the same Bantam team in 2012, 2013. It's just crazy that that would happen. Four kids from the same AAA Bantam team in Edmonton played for the Oilers in the same season. Just, just a uh, remarkable story. Uh, incredible, an incredible experience for him. I mean, it, it, someone was cutting onions in here at 11 o'clock or whenever it was when they were giving this interview. I, I, you know, I couldn't have been, he couldn't be happier for Matt Berlin. I think everybody around the league was happy for him. I don't think that the Blackhawks at all were, you know, felt like, you know, they're embarrassed whatsoever. I think they understood. That. No, it wasn't, it wasn't by any means. And McDavid even went out of his way to say, you know, we're not, we're not trying to embarrass the Blackhawks. We're just trying to give this kid, uh, an opportunity to live out his dream and, and have his one opportunity probably ever to play in the NHL. And it's, it, it was such a special night for, for Matt Berlin, for the organization, for all the fans at Rogers place who got to witness it. I mean, he even said in his hockey night in Canada interview, like earlier today, I was studying for my psychology midterm. And here I am a few hours later, backing up the Edmonton Oilers. And now I'm getting, thrown into the game <laughs> it just it's it's going to be a day that he'll never forget I'm glad that he's receiving all the attention that he is and he's been interviewed on the NHL network there were interview requests from basically all over the the national media too and to get this guy and he basically had to like wait a, a couple extra days to accommodate everyone because he's like you guys I, I I have an exam to write on Monday like I have to study for this but I'm sure that that is a something that he and his family and um, all his close friends will, will cherish. And it's uh it's such a dream that it was able to happen for, uh, like I said, his hometown club too. Yeah. And I think Chicago understood what was happening because if you can remember, I think it was 2018, they had an accountant. I think his name. Yes. Uh, Scott, was it Scott Fraser or Scott, Fo- Scott Foster? Who, I but think. he had to come into the game due to an injury yes and it also happened with david Ayers in toronto a few years ago too that's right that's right and that's the more famous one because when when david Ayers came into the game uh i think the hurricanes were beating the leafs they had a, a, a at least a two or three goal lead and the the leafs started to come back a little bit and let's not forget this is a goalie who practices with them regularly. So he, yeah. he's, he knows these guys. They've shot pucks at him before. So that made it a, a really cool story that he beat his team that he's technically employed by, considering he's like the yeah. Marley. He was the Marley's Zamboni driver too. So 
you hear these stories every once in a while. And, you know, until until NHL teams start carrying a third goalie on their roster, this will probably continue. But I like this. I I don't have any problem with it. I think it's really cool when you get to see uh, this happen. And it doesn't happen very often. It's it's more once in a blue moon. But it's it's awesome that uh, that uh, Matt Berlin got to experience that. It sure is. I mean, these the, these opportunities that especially the, these goalies get their once in a lifetime opportunities, and it's it's a rarity. You don't see it that much, and that's kind of why hockey, or especially the NHL, is different from the majority of these leagues. Like you can't imagine. I think we almost got to that point where in uh, what who was just playing? I think it was the 49ers and. On the Eagles, it almost got to their like their third string quarterback, which would have been their running yeah. back, Caffrey, almost happened. So you, you don't see it very much, and I think it's 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 just kind of a cool little quirk that that the NHL has, and we can talk about carrying a third goalie till we're blue in the face. But I I really well, they like did during the lock or um, yes. not the lockout the second pandemic year, um, and that was just due to the fact that you know having to recall players. And having to go through COVID quarantines and all this, it was just for precautionary reasons. But uh, the Oilers wouldn't have been able to get uh, Calvin Picard up from Bakersfield to Edmonton on that short of notice. He he wouldn't have been able to make a flight in, to Edmonton in time for the game. So, so you, that that's when you have situations like this happen. And you know what? It was uh, it was definitely a highlight. It was a great way to end what what is you know not really the first half of the season, but to end end this season going into the all-star break it was a very cool moment very very surreal um so happy for the for matt berlin and his family and um yeah the order is just it's just been kind of a magical season thus far it's kind of started out kind of questionable but as as we got on this team's getting better i think as the season's going on and with the strength of schedule being what it is coming out of the all-star break heading into towards the playoffs, the Oilers have a good opportunity here to put themselves in a, in a strong position to uh, start the playoffs on a good note. Absolutely. Let's hope that it's a strong race to the finish and the Oilers are able to cap it off by finally winning a Stanley Cup this spring. They definitely have a shot and hopefully we'll see a couple additions made over the next month or so and yes uh, that'll just give them an even better chance to go on a run so i want to thank you again for joining me today troy and let's do this again sometime anytime eric it's been a pleasure where can people follow you before we sign off um you can find me on twitter heavy oil country that's c-o-n-t-r-o-y um yeah i'm usually talking about the oilers or other questionable things <laughs> all right so everybody go give troy a follow thanks again man thanks eric All right, so for Troy Martinson, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.